Some of you will know the Chris Tomlin song, How Can I Keep From Singing? We're going to sing it later this morning, actually. But you, you might also know that that song is actually inspired by an older song written nearly 150 years ago by Robert Lowry. And that song is also called How Can I Keep From Singing? Although it's sometimes known by the first line, My life flows on in endless song. We got the words on the screen because I think probably most of us don't know this hymn. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife I hear its music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Robert Lowry was a Baptist minister who lived and served in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York, and apparently he didn't want to be remembered as a songwriter, which is too bad for him because he was pretty good at writing songs. He thought his, jo- his role as a preacher was a lot more important. And if you don't know this hymn, you might know some of the others he wrote, like Low in the Grave He Lay, Jesus, my Savior, which we used to sing at Easter sunrise services every year. How about What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's another Robert Lowry song. Or maybe you know Shall We Gather at the River? And I like all those songs, but I think My Life Flows On is his best. And I really love the line in the first verse about the sweet though far off him that hails the new creation. I find that to be such a hopeful image. Now, there's, there's an honesty there. There's an honesty about the lamentations of life, the tumult and the strife. And the author has clearly tasted some of that bitter cup. And yet, in spite of the sadness of the present age, in spite of the losses and the suffering and the grief, and the struggles, above all of that noise, he hears this hymn. And it's faint, and it's off in the distance, but it's enough to keep him singing. This song was written not long after the American Civil War. And so when I read this, I think about how armies in times past used to take a drum corps with them into battle. And these military bands were not used solely for entertainment or parading like they are today. These were trained soldiers, and they played their drums and their pipes and their bugles on the battlefield. They did it to send signals to the troops because they they didn't have sophisticated methods of communication that we have today. So they used music. And this hymn makes me think of a battle scene, and I imagine a soldier who is caught in the thick of the fight. And he's tired, and he is threatened on all sides, and his enemy has him outnumbered. And they are closing in, and it looks like his opponents may get the upper hand. But then in the distance, he hears drummers drumming, and he hears pipers piping, And they are playing the song of his own country. 
and he knows there is another regiment of troops on the way. Help is coming. And that song suddenly brings new life to his side, and they have a new burst of energy and a new confidence. They know that though the battle is long, their victory is assured by that sweet, though far-off hymn. And that is the mood in which I imagine Robert Lowry as he writes this song. He hears that sweet hymn ringing in the distance, and it is the song of his own country. For his citizenship is in heaven, and it finds an echo in his soul, and it reverberates through every bone in his body so that through all the tumult and the strife, he just can't help himself. How can he keep from singing? Well, I believe that our psalm today, Psalm 126, speaks of a similar kind of joy in the midst of struggle. And look at it with me if you have your Bible with you. It seems to me that this is a prayer written for the time between the times. On the one hand, it is a prayer which celebrates God's deliverance in the past, but it also pleads for deliverance in the present, and it claims assurance that that prayer is going to be heard in the days to come. It's actually a little bit difficult to know how to classify Psalm 126. It clearly has two, if not three, sections to it, and they're quite different from one another. In the first three verses, you have this jubilant and joyful celebration of return from captivity. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And if the psalm ended there, it would simply be a great uh, celebration song of God's deliverance. A prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of pure joy. But verse 4 changes the whole tone and character of this prayer. When we get to the actual petition, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And verse 1 and verse 4 actually use the same phrase. Verse 1 uh, says, when the Lord restored the fortunes. In verse 4 it becomes, restore our fortunes. Or in a more literal translation, when the Lord brought back the captives. In verse 1 becomes, Lord, restore our captives. In verse 4. And this has puzzled some commentators and interpreters who some of them have tried to harmonize the two somehow using complex grammatical arguments that are far beyond the reach of my knowledge. But the vast majority of scholars translate it just the way our English Bibles translated. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes. Verse 4, Lord, restore our fortunes. And to me, it seems like that petition in verse 4 fixes the context of the psalm. It's not simply written as a celebration. It's a prayer for present deliverance. Lord, we remember the great things you have done for us. Lord, we know how you restored our fortunes, but today we are asking, do it again. Do even greater things than these. The restoration is not complete. 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord, means we need more of your deliverance, Lord. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Like streams in the desert. What a juxtaposition with the laughter of the first part. The laughter of the men who dreamed in the former times. Now it is a cry for new life in the wasteland. It seems plausible that this psalm may have originally been written after the remnant of the people had returned from exile to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that was a miraculous and wonderful restoration. But it wasn't a complete restoration. So they could pray, uh, Lord, we, you know, we are so grateful for the, when you brought back the captives. That was wonderful. Our mouths were filled with laughter. But they could still pray, Lord, bring back the captives, because there were still people in captivity. Only a small number had returned. And you'll recall that story from Ezra chapter 3. When those who had returned from captivity laid the foundation stone of the new temple. And Ezra tells us that when the stone was laid and when worship was reestablished in Jerusalem, a great shout of praise went up from the people. But then he says the older people, the ones who could remember the once magnificent temple of Solomon, they wept aloud in grief over its destruction. And Ezra 3.13 says, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. And what an amazing conjunction of joy and pain. Joy at the partial restoration and yet a longing for a more complete deliverance. And note how that continued to be the experience of those returned from exile. And thinking about the psalm in that context gives us another window into the meaning of this second section. And after that petition, restore our fortunes, O Lord, it continues, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. cry for deliverance in this psalm, it comes with confidence. The joy of deliverance past gives confidence about what is to come. There is pain now. There is suffering. Yes, tears are being sown. But in the midst of it all, there is that deep and abiding joy. The church fathers saw the harvest imagery in this psalm, and they interpreted it eschatologically as hope for the reward to come in the final harvest. So they saw these verses as an encouragement to persevere in the midst of struggles as we journey toward our promised joyful future. And Calvin also saw that eschatological dimension of the psalm. He writes, As it will often happen that we must sow in tears... It becomes us to raise our minds to the hope of the harvest. So in this short psalm, we have not only a celebration of victory, when the Lord restored our fortunes, and not only a prayer for present deliverance, 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord. But also a deep and abiding assurance that God will one day put things right again. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. We all live in the time between the times. We are caught between the salvation that has already been made ours in Christ and the salvation that is being worked out in us now in our daily lives, in our sanctification, and that final realization of that salvation for which we wait in hope. You know, we often say that as a people, we are caught between the now and the not yet of Christ's kingdom. Between Christ's announcement, the kingdom of God is among you, and Christ's instruction to pray, your kingdom come. In many days, we feel like the not yet is drowning out the now. When it's late November and you have four papers to write and two exams to study for. When City Hall holds up your building permit for months and months on end. When your mother is diagnosed with cancer. When you lose a friend too soon. So many days that cry for God's kingdom to come is much stronger than our sense of the kingdom's presence among us. Truly, we sow many tears in this life. But it is our grounding in what God has already done that keeps us from drowning in those tears. We have hope for present and future deliverance because Christ In Christ, the Lord has done great things for us. And that power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in our midst. And he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. So are we sowing tears? Yes. But in God's economy, those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. Are we tired? Yes. With two weeks to go in the semester. Yet we run with endurance the race that is set before us because we look to Jesus who has already pioneered and perfected the new humanity and through his spirit is conforming us to his likeness. Do we fall short? Yes. But we have confidence that we will stand on that final day before the judge who has already been judged in our place, who has already been to hell and back for us and who ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes on our behalf even now. This is the melody of the hymn that hails the new creation. The story of Jesus crucified and risen for us while we were yet sinners, and we must stay rooted in that story. We must immerse ourselves in Scripture, not so that we can quote verses to one another, but so that we can find ourselves in the gospel story. God's written word authoritatively attests this grand narrative of God's mighty acts, and it places us in the middle of that tension between the now and the not yet, and when the not yet threatens to overtake us, God's word says, now, remember, the Lord has done great things for us, 
And we pray to him with confidence, Lord, restore our fortunes, because we know that the new creation which is inaugurated in Christ's resurrection is continuing to break into our world even now. And will surely one day be consummated in his coming again. Whatever the news of the day may be, that is our story. Like all the Psalms of Ascent that we have been looking at in these journey chapels, this is a psalm that was sung by pilgrims as they traveled on their way to Jerusalem. And today the psalm still calls us to sing, to join in the song of God's mighty acts, to sing the celebration of the great things he has done for us, to cry out for the inbreaking of his kingdom in our midst, and to confidently proclaim his promise of new creation in which he will wipe all these tears we have sown from our eyes. This song, this resurrection song, this is the song of our own country. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So when the day is long, we must tune our ears to hear that sweet though far off hymn that hails the new creation. Hear the music. Let that melody find an echo in your soul and know that the battle will be won, the victory will be ours, and let your life flow on in endless song. Amen.